One of actually my first spiritual teacher was a part Native American Indian woman called Evelyn Eaton. And I trained with her for two years to become a pipe carrier. She, she, like Ruth, my other teacher, was so unique and eccentric because when she wasn't in a sweat lodge, she wore woolen twin sets with pearls and Scottish plaid skirts. (laughs) And um, she um, lived next door to her companion, Edie. And they shared their life together, but of course they lived separately, so it was totally a kosher relationship. One day we were, I can't remember, doing something more ordinary in the evening and someone knocked on the door and she actually got up to open it and there was this big guy, maybe six foot five, and um, he was crying and he said, I got hurt in a logging accident. He was a logger. And someone told me you could help me. You know, he must have been desperate to knock on her door. And so she said, yes, come on in. And she laid him on the floor. And she got a large crystal and put it on his back and then um, seeded everything and then um, picked up um, her eagle feathers and started to beat the sage. And in that moment, I could hear the wings of a, re- of a real eagle calling the real eagle spirit into the room. And so she did this healing. And at the end of the healing, he got up and he said, thank you, and walked without pain out the door. The miracle of creation Those of you who know me know that in the recent years, I quote Dr. Trimmer. I'm not sure who he is. I I keep looking up on the web, hoping that one year it will come up with more than Trimmer lawnmowers. So (laughs) Dr. Trimmer says that we are miracles of creation. And... Our journey in life is to realize this and to bow down in respect to this miracle of life that we are. And it seems like a vision that is at once so beautiful and also sometimes so far away. And Pascal talked about what it meant for him in his Dharma talk to hear the voice for wisdom. And one of, one of um, my voices, apart from Evelyn Eaton, is my teacher, Ruth Dennison. And she 
she expressed for me or modeled for me inhabiting or her life being lived as a miracle of creation. But this is how it looked. When we would go somewhere to fly, she would have this Christmas hat on, even though it was the middle of summer, like a big red Christmas hat. She would be wearing a coat that she had picked up from somewhere or another, holding these two bags, and she would look like a bag lady. And there would be nothing in her mind and heart but delight. Delight for life to be lived in the ways that it just expressed itself without any sense of self-consciousness or messaging of, oh, you can do this, you can't do this, don't you know you don't go to the airport wearing this long hat, in, you know, that's a Christmas hat in the middle of the summer. When I first went to study with her, I was in my butch phase, so my um, very, very short hair and um, Oshkosh boots and um, dungarees and checked shirt. <laughs> and um, I, I had said after a number of retreats, I... I really want to be a teacher. And she's like, well, we'll see. (laughs) So over the years, she took me under her wing. And she said to me, you cannot, you cannot sit in front of the class wearing this. And because I was um, so devoted to her, I let her dress me in her German lacy grandmotherly type of shirt and skirt with some kind of babushka scarf (laughs) around my head. And I actually have a picture of myself like that on the altar. Because it felt close to a miracle to me that I could do something like that that I could inhabit something so different. That invitation, when we feel the invitation in our hearts that brought us here, it feels like the invitation to open to ourselves as miracles of creation. And not in any particular um, uh, structured way as much as that capacity to allow expression without rules, to find that incredible courage and surrender to allow life to live through us. I, some of you know, had polio when I was six, and from the polio I couldn't talk. And it felt like a miracle to learn after a number of years and 
many, many, many hours of exercises with my palate to learn how to talk again. That kind of felt like a miracle. I've been sick a fair amount in my life. After that, I got encephalitis and so on, and mumps and so on and so on. And I'm sick again. And the miracle for me, being sick, is not about all the endeavors that I have made to get better. It is that I feel I am a miracle of creation being sick. That there have been times, but not all the time, when that experience is held in the same reverence and honor as when I could talk. That actually the the movement from polio and encephalitis and many exercises and going to hours of dance class to being athletic and working out with my ex who was a triathlete to huffing and puffing up the hill. I really took it as a practice to go up the hill to try and get my lungs to carry more oxygen so that I could think a little bit more clearly tonight. That that transition from athlete to huffing and puffing up the hill also feels like a miracle of creation because it is life expressing itself through me in this particular way. And that the capacity is there to surrender to it in grace, to carry it as this particular gift to learn about, which I don't know, as we don't know how things will unfold. But it's in some way a miracle. And this is what I think, not that this... It's what I understood when I first came to the Dharma because when I first came to the Dharma and I thought of the Buddha and taking refuge in the Buddha and if there was anything miraculous about that, it was having a really groovy time, kind of like an LSD trip, you know, when you're on a good trip as against a bad trip when everything is sort of delightful and gorgeous. That this... This practice is the practice of surrendering to life in a way that means it is lived as a miracle. And that is the path as I understand it that the Buddha outlined for us. And what he speaks about and what I've seen for myself through his teachings is that there is a particular dynamic that happens that takes us away from this miracle and that separates us and encloses us and imprisons us so that rather than feeling in friendship and connection with life, 
we feel the smallness of ourself and we all have actually seesawed in different ways back and forth and back and forth. That dynamic that brings us into the smallness of self, the Buddha names as suffering. And he says, when he says, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and its ending, he is speaking particularly to the dynamic where we lose our humanity and where we find ourselves kind of like in a prison. Maybe that's what is one of the reasons I do prison work is because we know it already even though we're not in a prison. And when we're in a prison, it's, it, it really, it's a lot worse. But not all the time, actually. So I wanted to backtrack a little bit and, and acknowledge in a way that sometimes is easier for us to acknowledge the dynamic of, of ownership, of making something me and mine, the result of which takes us away from the miracle. And so I think about, because it's so, you know, some things just strike you. I was traveling with a friend of mine to the coast of Oregon, um, and I saw how some of the hills had been totally clear-cut. And it hurts. It hurts to see the earth. It's like stripped, forcibly stripped of her clothes of the trees. And we know that in that forcible stripping, the topsoil is lost, it moves into the rivers, which clog up the rivers so the salmon can't spawn and block up the estuaries and, and actually block up the way the ocean, the ocean is able to come in and clean out the estuaries. Just one small example of what happens when a lumber company comes in and buys and owns the land. Not because the lumber company, which I used to think was evil because I lived on the, on the coast, but because the, the, the misunderstanding of the dynamic of ownership because I own this, I think I can control and manipulate this to give me the comfort of pleasant experiences, which I think I can access more of by having more money, right? That the whole thing about greed is that not only does it, it bring us a false sense of power, but it gives us what we think we want, which is more pleasant experiences. And that, that, that tying in of this is me and mine and I can do what I want to get some, to get some more pleasant experiences. So the fracking, you know, of, of the ways uranium is mined 
and dumped, particularly on indigenous people's lands, I can, I speaking for the owners of the uranium mine, I actually went out when I was a teenager with the son of someone who um, um, owned Rio Tinto Zinc, terrible mining company, not terrible mining company, mining company that misunderstood the uh, ownership. Um, And how that polluted, how the tailings of mines pollute the lands. Why does that happen? Because there's a misunderstanding in the relationship of ownership. And then if we bring it a little closer in, just thinking of the ways that in our relationships, because we love someone, we think we can own them. And so my, my ex, one of my exes, I should say, said to me, you can't go out like that. Maybe I was looking a little like Ruth. You can't go out like that. You know, and, and I mean, it, no, no big deal. That sense of ownership, because we love someone, or a, a little more intense when men were able legally to own women, the ways they related to those women. Because what the Buddha is saying is that when there is a relationship of ownership, there actually is never dignity. When you own a woman, that relationship means you cannot see the dignity of woman. When white people own slaves, in that relationship, it was impossible to see the dignity of Africans. The nature of the relationship of ownership precludes seeing the dignity and the miracle of life, whether it's in nature or whether it's a human being. And then the Buddha brought it even closer, and he said, when we are in suffering, it is because we are in ownership. That there is this basic misunderstanding that we are part of, there's a basic misunderstanding, and it is that we think we are not part of nature that we are separate, an entity that can be owned. And we take not good responsibility, we take the word is control, and we take control of ourselves. So we experience this body as my body, this my lock as my lock, my thoughts, my ideas, my feelings in the relationship of my, and I know this is really radical, in the relationship of my, there can be no dignity and miracle of life. The Buddha says it this way. He says there is always suffering in this relationship, and he calls it attachment or identification. And one of the refrains, and it's so beautiful because he said this to his son, Rahula, who um, wanted to study with him. And he said, as a, as a kind of mantra, 
This is not me and this is not mine. This is not myself. This body, these perceptions, these feelings of pleasant or unpleasant, the whole mental world that he called mental formations and consciousness. This is not me or mine. This is a natural process. A natural process. So when Pascal talked about this is the park, this is the, the is that what you use, the word park? The national park. This, this is nature, our national park. This is nature living through us in a miraculous, unique, particular way that deserves to be acknowledged as a miracle. This is a natural process. And that what is so incredible about the Buddha's teachings is that he found a practice that helped us to understand that this is a living reality and how to, how to cultivate the mind that opens not just once, but finally, unwaveringly, into this understanding. And that's freedom. Freedom is when we, we live as part of nature. And that in that relationship, we are living in a kind of grace. And so when we feel inspired by teachers, whether they are Bishop Tutu or Ansung Suu Kyi, our teachers, it is because we sense that grace they are living with in which they bow down to the life that is living and being given to them. And, you know, because Mandela just died, to acknowledge again what it means to have spent 27 years in jail and to take that, to take that as the lesson of how can I navigate you this gift just as we would take anything that is given to us. And in that process of navigating it, purifying the mind and heart of all hatred and resentment and greed and the misunderstanding that this is some big mistake that shouldn't be happening to me. That capacity to live in grace with what we've been given is just really beautifully described in um, uh, a favorite story of mine. And, and in saying this, I want to like bracket it and say, in no way does taking what we're given as the lesson for grace mean that injustice and oppression is okay. Not at all. So just in case you think I might be saying that.
What I'm saying is that injustice is the purification process for us to take leadership to end it. That's actually the Sufi invitation that is given to us when, I don't know what the teacher said, um, whatever life, let me backtrack, because the story is really a beautiful story and I want to tell it again. Uh, Oh, I don't really have time, but I will anyway. (laughs) So, when this is the reason I, st- I studied with Ruth. When I first met her, she was in a medicine wheel gathering on the coast, somewhere on Route 1. And this woman came, there was a pipe circle, and she was smoking the pipe. And this woman stumbled into the circle with a very distorted body, like thick, sagging skin and... Um, you couldn't really see her eyes and and waves and waves of skin on her chin. And I mean, very distorted. I, I don't know exactly what that disease was, but it was close to the young boy in mask, if you ever saw that movie. And she stumbled into the circle and and kind of crumpled in front of Evelyn and said, I, I don't want to live anymore. I want to die. And Evelyn said to her, the earth is in pain and she's struggling and each one of us is carrying a little bit of that pain. It is the way we can heal the earth by carrying and learning to carry that pain. And there was something about the way she framed it that gave me a a pathway, like there is a way to carry the pain. Because when I was a teenager, I was in so much pain I tried to kill myself. And so I I had come, I had like barely managed to survive for so many years, struggling to find, well, how do I hold this pain? Not that I would have framed it that way. And here was a teacher saying, it's not because you are a bad person. It is something that each human being is carrying. The Buddha talks it about it in slightly more technical language. And he says that every human being is born with ignorance until they're fully enlightened. And that every culture has ignorance in it. And that it is our work to turn towards that ignorance or pain in order to heal it, that we might be free. And he laid out the Eightfold Path in order to do it. And when we talk about ignorance, we're talking about the misunderstanding that this life is something to be owned and privatized and controlled. And because we think it is ours, 
And because that misunderstanding infuses then the energies that come out of it, which are greed and hatred and delusion, we misunderstand how to live our life. So that feeling of this is mine means that when we are sitting in the meditation hall and there is an unpleasant experience, we take it as ours. And because it's unpleasant, we think it shouldn't be there. And so aversion, the not wanting, immediately arises. And we believe the not wanting, and so we move into strategies of control and manipulation. We all do that. We all do that. And it's just so beautiful to name that this isn't like a personal problem. It's something that we actually, when we face and acknowledge, begin to have agency around. But until we turn towards it and keep seeing it through our mindfulness practice, there's no agency. And we're locked in a dynamic that actually make what we know that, we know that dynamic. When we do not feel like a miracle of creation, worthy of everyone, including ourselves, bowing down to, we know it's because of this dynamic. That in that dynamic of control and strategizing and manipulating, we have lost connection. And that's what the Buddha is saying. And it comes from this basic misunderstanding that we own it. And because we own it, we think we should be controlling it. If this was an easy process to live, we would all be enlightened already. (laughs) It isn't an easy process to uncover. It takes the most incredible patience to get lost, to see ourselves being lost, and to pull ourselves back out of it. And so for me, especially being sick, the way I've been able to work with it when I can is in this, in this mantra of this is not me or mine. This is what's been given to me to hold, to learn, to find out about. But it is not me or mine. I do not own it. And in that relationship, I find that place of grace. That possibility actually can only happen when we see how we are in relationships of ownership, of wanting or not wanting. And that's what's so beautiful about this practice because it helps us to see that dynamic over and over again of wanting and not wanting, of, of um, controlling and strategizing out of that wanting and not wanting. It's great, isn't it? It's totally great to see. It's not 
that wanting and not wanting are wrong or bad in themselves. It is that they are infused with the perception of misunderstanding that we have to do something about it other than just experience it as wanting and not wanting and part of the way human beings are constituted, which is that we have pleasant and unpleasant experiences. So going back to Mandela again, I know, and many of you note, well, we don't even have to go to prison to know how unpleasant it is. It's just this rush came up of just how intense it is when my parents were imprisoned and seeing them in jail. That capacity to hold the unpleasantness without making anything an enemy is our capacity that Mandela exhibits. That's our capacity. The process is the process of being mindful and seeing the dynamics. And in the seeing, disentangling from the tangle of ownership. Just then on a more prosaic, just in a kind of more, pros, more prosaic way in terms of gender and our gender expression, just for something a little lighter up in terms of ownership, because when we use the word queer or gay, it's, I don't know about for those of you who are younger and how it is for you, but I remember a time when if you were bi, you were not accepted in the community. And it was a big deal for bi people to be invited into gay lesbian marches because there was such a strict definition of what it was to be gay or lesbian. And then we know how many of our community had a difficult time with trans. You know, and how the Human Rights Commission was lobbying for inclusion of gay rights but didn't want to include trans rights. Just the ways that we can take something as beautiful as our own unique particular expression and begin to define it in ways that imprison us. And so in thinking about, in talk, I was talking to someone, I can't remember who, and I was thinking, what does it mean to be a queer femme? So put me in front of a computer and if something goes wrong, I'm like, honey, honey, what's going on? I don't understand it. I'm like just totally befuddled. Put me in front of a room giving a training around oppression and, and, and privilege, and I'm like totally yang. 
I'm like not like traditionally, you know, femme at all. I don't know in your circles, but in some of my circles, we say femmes rule in bed. You know, <laughs> when <laughs> so just to acknowledge that actually, whatever ways we describe ourselves are so responsive to different conditions. You know, if I'm facing a broken uh, garbage disposal, I'm like, forget it. I, I'm like totally flummoxed. You know, but if I'm hiking, I'm on a trail with my very butch girlfriend and there's some cows in the pasture, she's like, no way. I am not going in that pasture. No way. You know, and I'm like, honey, it's, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. No, I, I'm sorry. I refuse to go in that pasture with cows. You know, and I'd be the one putting my backpack, walking through the pa- uh, pasture, putting it down, coming back, getting her backpack, putting it down, walking through, putting it down, and then holding her hand as we walk through the pasture, just to say different conditions awaken different energies inside of ourselves because there is no fixed self that we can actually call me or mine that is unchanging. We are this fluid expression of life. Sometimes we can see that. Sometimes we do walk out of this room feeling like a miracle. Or if not, this room, when we dance or when we sing, we have moments of that kind of connection or when we make love. There's a really beautiful um, Tibetan teacher called Kalu Rinpoche who says that we live in a world of concepts. When we look at where we get caught, often it is in believing our thoughts and taking them to be me or mine. Just to give a really simple guideline of which thoughts Not that we don't know they bring us suffering, but just to announce it again, which thoughts actually support imprisonment and which which thoughts don't. Any thought that has associated with it friendship, ease, some sense of connection, some clarity, is a thought that is will contribute to our well-being and freedom. Any thought that has associated with it blame, judgment, envy, jealousy, irritation, grumpiness, fear, um, conceit, avarice, worry, sloth, torpor, doubt, wrong view, Any thought that 
has those qualities associated with it, especially blame and shame, not true. Not true. So just to acknowledge if one of the young, young queer people who are really struggling there have been a number of them, I don't know if you've recently read about it, who have been deeply challenged or even killed themselves because of all the negative Facebook and other types of messaging that have been directed towards them. If that young person came into this room, we would absolutely see the beauty of that person as a, as a young queer person. There would be no doubt in, my, in our minds, right, that the negative messaging that is happening is not true. There's just, there would be no doubt in our minds. Easier to see with someone else. And yet, we believe that negative messaging because it's happening in our minds. Mindfulness is the great liberator because it sees it. And because it sees it, it helps us to challenge it. Sometimes it takes a great act of warriorship. And I wanted to say that because while mindfulness is the soft receiver of experience, there is also this great energy and effort that the Buddha invites us to, courageous effort, to see when things are unwholesome and to abandon them. And because the conditioning, the negative conditioning, is so intense, our negative thoughts about ourselves and others too is so intense, we believe it to be true because of its intensity and it is so intense because we've had those thoughts over and over again. So intense because they've been repeated over and over again. We have to take this great sword of this great warrior sword of Manjushri or of um, the Amazon or of um, the, great, the great Buddha and say, cut, cut. I am not going there. This is a thought of shame I have had about myself for too long. And I am cutting it. I am not going there. Because I know that if that thought was directed at this young person walking into our room that was coming to visit us, we would say the same thing to that person. Cut. That is not a true reflection of you. You are a miracle of life. We have that capacity. And that's what our own seed of miracle that's living inside of us calls us to. To take a stand for ourselves and to cut the, that tape that keeps us in prison. As we cut it, as we cut those thoughts about ourselves, we create the space eventually to allow them 
because we've become more disentangled from them and it has no reverberation. So that I have, I have, over these last, you know, just moments of self-hatred might come up. And I'm like, oh yeah, I know you so well. No problem. You get to live in the garden of my life. No problem. But it took such this huge, courageous commitment to cut the times that I believed it. That, that's what I meant when I said I take a stand of zero tolerance. That I'm more deserving than those thoughts. In order to liberate ourselves from them, we have to see them. And that's why we slug it out with mindfulness. So let me end with this poem. It's called Eagle Poem by Joy Harjo. To pray you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound but other circles of motion like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a circle of motion, like eagles rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. So let's sit for a moment.
Thank you for your listening and presence. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.